With heroes in London, New York, Jerusalem, and Cairo, this is Shine Network News for the week ending Sunday, July 17, 2005. Hi, I'm your host, Tom Payne. Welcome to Shire Network News, the official podcast of the Anglosphere blog, SilentRunning.tv. Coming up this week, a new feature in the program, Andrew Ian Dodge reports from London. We have an interview with an actual moderate Muslim. Yes, there are some on the response of the Islamic world to the London bombings. I think the teachings, the teachings of Islam are the direct inspiration for these attacks, uh, and they certainly are. Uh, men like Abu Musab al-Khali, Osama bin Laden, cites the, the sources of Islam, the Quran, Sunnah, Hadith, uh, in justifying the attacks. These attacks are a result of Islamic theology. That's Thomas Hayden from the Free Muslim Coalition Against Terror, and we'll hear from him shortly. We also have an interview with the blogger taking a stand against anti-Zionism in churches, and getting quite a bit of criticism for it too. First of all, my last I've been called a fascist, or, or fascist, as Interesting that you get called a fascist when you take up the cause of Israel. That's Cyrus from the blog Christian Hate, who we'll hear from at the end of the show. And of course, Lawrence Simon, the man no podcast would be complete without, will be along with his full of crap report. This week it's Apple iTunes, which is overflowing the virtual toilet bowl. In the last week, blogs have still been dealing with the aftermath of the London bombings, with much satirical mirth directed at elements of the British press. The Guardian and the Independent have been outdoing each other in what seems to be a contest to deliver the most abject apology for the existence of the West and blame ourselves for the existence of terrorism. So far, I'd have to say The Guardian is ahead on points, with a special bonus for hiring Dilpazia Aslam as a trainee journalist. He describes the bombers as sassy and suggests, quote, shocked would be to suggest that the bombings happened through no responsibility of our own. And who is Dilpazia Aslam when he's at home? Blogger Scott Burgess googled his name and wouldn't you know it. Turns out he comes to The Guardian straight from writing from the Islamo-fascist site Khalifa.com, where he's written in support of a Muslim superstate conquering the entire world. He's a member of Hizbut Tahrir. He's the enemy. Here are some excerpts from his writings. The establishment of Khalifa is our only solution to fight fire with fire, the state of Israel versus the Khalifa state. Muslims grant their loyalty and allegiance to their din and the Umar, not to a football team or nation-state. Well, he'll fit right into the Guardian, won't he? John Hawkins at Right Wing News wrote a very powerful and effective piece earlier in the week, basically picking apart the arguments of those who believed that Iraq under Saddam Hussein had nothing to do with terrorism, Osama bin Laden, or September 11th. Ron Reagan tried that line on Christopher Hitchens recently, and I think Chris is still gnawing on what's left of Reagan's carcass. John Hawkins' post was called Debunking Eight Anti-War Myths About the Conflict in Iraq. How effective was it? Well, it attracted some of the most insane hate mail you've ever seen from the moonbat left, including one rather memorable critic who insisted loudly that Hawkins must be some sort of idiot if he expected people to believe that Saddam Hussein had anything called mustard gas. This guy said it was mustard gas. After all, what sort of idiot would you have to be to believe that Saddam could have made a deadly gas out of mustard? 
well, almost as effective as this item, coming up now from The War Room with Quinn and Rose, a radio program in the States which seems to be a little too gung-ho even for me. But have a listen to this item, where they discover how the mainstream media used to report about links between Iraq and international terrorism uh, before they decided it didn't fit the new script. This is a tape from ABC News in 1999, before the attacks of September 11th talking about Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein. In Germany, Mamdou Salim, alleged to be a key military advisor and believed to be privy to bin Laden's most secret projects, is also apprehended. The U.S. government alleges he was under secret orders to procure enriched uranium for the purpose of developing nuclear weapons. These are allegations bin Laden does not now deny. It would be a sin for Muslims not to try to possess the weapons that would prevent the infidels from inflicting harms on Muslims. But how we could use these weapons if we possess them is up to us. Okay, so here you have an ABC report about Osama bin Laden trying to get nuclear weapons for al-Qaeda in 1999. Now keep listening. With an American price on his head, there weren't many places bin Laden could go unless he teamed up with another international pariah, one also with an interest in weapons of mass destruction. Now, my, my, who might that be? Wasama believes in uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend and it's someone I should cooperate with. That's certainly the current case with Iraq. Saddam Hussein has a long history of harboring terrorists. You're kidding! You know, after Bush got elected, nobody in the media would admit that. This is before Bush got elected. And so everybody, including the Democrats in the Senate and the Congress, they didn't have any problem with tying uh, Osama bin Laden to Saddam Hussein and terrorism to Iraq. No problemo. As soon as Bush gets elected, it goes right down the memory hole. Well, here's something. Here's a blast from the past, kids, from the grooveyard of golden goodies. Carlos the Jackal, Abu Nidal, Abu Abbas, the most notorious terrorists of their era, all found shelter and support at one time in Baghdad. Isn't that amazing? Gee, the media had no problem with that back then, did they? Intelligence sources say bin Laden's long relationship with the Iraqis began as he helped Sudan's fundamentalist government in their efforts to acquire weapons of mass destruction. Three weeks after the bombing, on August 31st, bin Laden reaches out to his friends in Iraq and Sudan. Gee, I thought he didn't have any interaction at all with Iraq and Sudan. Iraq's vice president arrives in Khartoum to show his support for the Sudanese after the U.S. attack. ABC News has learned that during these meetings, senior Sudanese officials acting on behalf of bin Laden ask if Saddam Hussein would grant him asylum. Sudanese officials acting on behalf of Osama bin Laden asking the representatives of Saddam Hussein in Iraq for asylum. Gee, it's funny now. we got this bright line the Democrats have drawn between Iraq and the war on terror. Why? Iraq is just his... If I would have made Osama bin Laden the target. Why? This is a distraction from the war at BS. Iraq was indeed interested. ABC News has learned that in December, an Iraqi intelligence chief named Farouk Hijazi, now Iraq's ambassador to Turkey, made a secret trip to Afghanistan to meet with bin Laden. Well, isn't that interesting? Now, where's that been all these years now? Three intelligence agencies tell ABC News they cannot be certain what was discussed. But almost certainly, they say, bin Laden has been told he would be welcome in Baghdad. 
and intelligence sources say they can only speculate on the purpose of an alliance. What could bin Laden offer Saddam Hussein? Only days after he meets Iraqi officials, bin Laden tells ABC News that his network is wide and there are people prepared to commit terror in his name who he does not even control. It is our job to incite and to instigate. By the grace of God, we did that. And certain people responded to this instigation. Mm -hmm. So the next time somebody tells you that there's a bright line between Iraq and Osama bin Laden and the war on terror, tell them to go pound salt. Of course, our top story this week, and likely to stay that way for quite a while, is the London bombings. To keep you informed, we're adding a new feature to Shire Network News, a report from London-based blogger Andrew Ian Dodge of the blog Dodge Blogium. Here's his first report. This is Andrew Ian Dodge of the London Report. As you may have heard, there has been a major break in the terrorist investigation as they've arrested a, an Egyptian chemist who was in Leeds and left right before the attacks. The Egyptians seem to have nailed this guy pretty quickly, which is good and very encouraging. Uh, there seems to be a fair to middling chance he's the mastermind behind the entire attacks. As you would expect, we're getting quite a bit of uh, Muslims making excuses. But Shahid Malik, uh, an MP, Labour MP in the House of Commons, actually made a very, very good statement, and he seems to have broken the, the taboo for Muslims to start to criticizing fellow Muslims for not paying attention to these lunatics better. Hopefully that's a new trend, because I think some truly moderate Muslims are starting to realize that if they don't do something about it, and there's another attack like this, they're going to be in serious trouble. I suspect that if there's another attack on the scale, um, of this attack, that the British resolve and calmness in this sort of situation might not exactly change. It's not exactly like we don't realize where most of this is coming from. Uh, we know where the radical clerics are. We know the mosques. I'm absolutely quite frankly shocked that um, the Finsbury Park Mosque is still standing after these attacks. But then again, it's not really in the British character to go out and burn things down. The left's interesting uh, obsession with the BMP seems to be bombing rather rather badly right now as well. They keep saying, oh, well, we have to worry that the BMP won't take advantage of this and try to recruit people. And everybody's saying, well, shouldn't we be worried about the Islamist extremists that are trying to kill us rather than this lunatic party that's got one or two percent of the vote nationwide? Other than that, London is sort of returning to normal. Um, I haven't ventured on the tubes yet, but I know quite a few people who have and who are taking buses normally, uh, it's pretty much as usual. There, were, there, there was obviously the two-minute the, the two silence at noon yesterday, and also there was a get-together in Trafalgar Square at 6 o'clock. I was thinking of going to that, uh, but I had another engagement, and uh, there was some talk about be poetry being read, and I'm not actually that keen on poetry, especially most modern poetry, which is rubbish. Anyway, instead I went to the ASI summer party, uh, which David Davis was at and spoke. Other than that, not really much is going on. Uh, a lot of people criticizing Howard for not actually opposing anything. It seems that Jeremy Paxman and Andrew Neal are more of an opposition than, than is uh, the Tory party right now, but hopefully uh, that will change soon. Politicians are gearing up for their break, which starts off the on the 21st, their four-month break, I think it is. And for the most part, after the blip of last weekend, pretty much everything is, ba is going back to normal. All the events are still going on, which is nice to see. Anyway, um, thank you very much. This has been Andrew Ian Dodge from London. Please visit 
AndrewandIanDodge.com, LibertyCadre.net, and of course, DisgracefulMusic.com. So it's goodbye from London. That was Andrew Ian Dodge demanding that you go and log on to his blog, Dodge Blogium. Ah, oh, why not? What the hell? Throw him a bone. He'll be reporting from London for us each week here on Cheyenne Network News. Well, of course, the bombings resulted in a massive racist backlash with thousands of British football hooligans and British National Party activists hunting Muslims down like rabbits and hanging them from the lampposts while the working-class streets of England ran red with Pakistani blood. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm reading the news from Bizarro World. Back in reality, there was a lot of talk about the possibility of a racist backlash, but rather less of an actual backlash that you might have expected, given all the apprehensive talk about it. But what are Muslims thinking in the wake of the bombings in London and the news that the terrorists were homegrown? I put that question to Thomas Hayden, a New Zealand-based member of the Free Muslim Coalition Against Terror, for his take on how Muslims worldwide are taking these developments. The reaction has been of uh, purported outrage uh, to the attacks. Uh, most Muslims have, in terms of uh, who represent Muslim organizations, have, have publicly stated that these attacks represent do not represent Islam, they're an ethnomite to Islam, and do not represent any of the teachings of Islam. You say purported, though. Purport, I say purported uh, because I don't think that's an honest assessment. I think the teachings, the teachings of Islam are the direct inspiration for these attacks, uh, and they certainly are. Uh, men like Abu Musab al-Khali, Osama bin Laden, s- cite the, the sources of Islam, the Quran, Sunnah, Hadith, uh, in justifying these attacks. These attacks are a result of Islamic theology. Everyone talks about the, the moderate Muslim majority condemning this and have been at great pains to suggest that this, this is nothing to do with Islam. Are you suggesting that that approach by non-Muslims is a mistake? Well, mere condemnation without action is, uh, is futile, I think. And we've heard this sort of mantra from, from the Muslim community since uh, September 11th that Islam is a religion of peace, Islam is a re- religion of peace, over and over again. But it hasn't been coupled with action. There's been no plan of action, no strategic initiatives within mosques that have that have been initiated in mosques, Islamic communities, to put forward uh, a moderate vision of Islam that truly rejects jihad ideology, uh, rejects the, the status of not the status of non-Muslims and traditional treatment of apostates. The fact that these London bombers came from within the British Muslim community, has that really hit home to Muslims living in the West, do you think? Are they going to regard this as being quite different from the external attacks, like in uh, September 11th and Madrid? I think it could have an effect, particularly in the UK. Um, It it may have have the effect of actually polarising the community. I think in that situation, you may have a great deal of Muslims who are certainly sick and tired of, of the the common mantras, and who are so shocked at the fact that these are homegrown bombers that they may start moving into a, towards a positive uh, direction. But it's difficult for them to speak out, isn't it? It is very difficult, particularly in England, when groups like al Muhajirun rule sort of with an iron fist in Muslim communities. Uh, dissension is not tolerated. Uh, people are ostracized. People are intimidated and often even afraid to, to, to go to the mosques. Many Muslims pray at home. In the New Zealand Muslim community, there's actually been uh, there actually been some attacks on Muslim uh, religious centres in New Zealand, haven't there? Yes, there have been. There's been seven attacks, uh, acts of vandalism in Auckland, with respect to I think six mosques and one cemetery. What's the response been like from the wider New Zealand community to that? It's been one of outrage and disgust. The non-Muslim community has been very, very vocal, and saying that New Zealand is a tolerant society 
and we don't accept this sort of behavior. And the authorities have acted very quickly. A man was apprehended yesterday uh, for his role in the attacks. How's the New Zealand Jewish community uh, responded to this? Well, as always, the, the, the Jewish community here, led, led by partially by David Zawartz, has been very, very supportive uh, and has stood in solidarity with the Muslim community here. Uh, if we look back to recent, uh, the recent situation of Somalis being targeted by uh, supremacist, white supremacists, uh, David Zawartz and, and, and the Jewish community stood in solidarity, and they've been very, very, very generous to the Muslim community, almost to a fault. If we take a look back with respect to the Israeli New Zealand diplomatic role and, and the desecration of Jewish graves that resulted, you didn't quite see the sort of solidarity from the Muslim community. That's, uh, that's something of a shame. It's troubling. It's very troubling. It's uh, sort of indicative of the overall problem. What about the worldwide Muslim community? I mean, you get the impression that they were more concerned with the possibility of reprisal attacks against their religious centres than sometimes with the actual bombing itself. This is, this is something that, 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 I mean, has been prevalent since 11 September. Generally, Muslim organisations, they voice, would make a general condemnation of the attack, which is often conditional, of course, or qualified, uh, and then state, then discuss the fear of a backlash, and, and that's, what's ha that's immediately what happened in England, in the UK, and, and what's happened here. My discussions with Muslims, the first words out of their mouths here were a fear of a backlash, essentially. Are progressive Muslims such as yourself starting to make inroads? Are you starting to get hurt, or are you still regarded as, well, Uncle Tom's, I guess? I have a pretty I have good standing here in the Muslim community. Um, I think that probably has more to do with my approach. But I think generally progressive Muslims are failing miserably. The group that I belong to, the Free Muslims Coalition Against Terrorism, we worked very hard uh, in bringing our message across, but we're not doing enough. What we've been doing, again, is sort of, we, we've been a bit more proactive than most Muslim organizations. We've stated that there are significant problems with Islam, but we've identified the problems, yet we haven't proffered a way forward. We haven't strategized and created that roadmap that, that many Muslims so desperately need. Many Muslims would object to you saying that parts of Islam are the problem. They would resist that. Well, I can crystallize um, my argument. In Islam, there are sources of Islamic... There are three sources of Allah, essentially. That is the Quran, the Sunnah, and there's also various legal tools of Islamic jurisprudence. The approach that uh, many progressive Muslims are beginning to take is the Quranic approach, which is looking at the Quran itself and sort of moving away from Muslim tradition. The there are significant problems with Muslim tradition. Many aspects of the Prophet Muhammad's teachings, which are pretty much written down approximately 200 years after he died, conflict with the Quran directly. And there's also several man-made tools that have been used to interpret the Quran that, in our view, in my view particularly, tend to make Islam more prone to, to making jihad prevalent. So there, there is a way forward. Muslims need a roadmap. They need to be provided and shown how. Because, again, there is a lot of opposition, and many Muslims are afraid. Essentially, you're talking about Islam going through a reformation, but it took Christianity three or four hundred years to finally get its reformation, right? Uh, how, how long do you think Islam has uh, in order to be able to, to do this before terrible things happen? Not long. Not long, uh, unfortunately. Uh, if the pattern continues, if we see this sort of pattern continuing in continual Muslim denials, Western tolerance will diminish greatly. Terrible, terrible things could, could result. How much of this is uh, an attack by groups within Islam on the West, and how much of this is an Islamic civil war? Well, I don't believe it's an Islamic civil war at all. I think there's, there's a lot of complicity among Muslims for what happens. 
basically what you're saying is they can't condemn what happened in London but condone what happens in Israel. That's correct. That's correct. And that's, that's part of the problem. Again, it's, it's a transparent analysis. They're not questioning the mains, they're just questioning particular political usage of it. Some of the objections to the bombings in London I heard uh, from some Muslim groups were that uh, many of the bombs went off in predominantly Muslim areas and they didn't seem to object to the idea per se, but only that it might, it might kill Muslims. That's right. I mean, that's, 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 that is prevalent. I've also heard similar sentiments. And it's those sentiments that need to be eradicated. And that's, that only comes from a, a true understanding that Islam does, in fact, prohibit terrorism. It does, in fact, prohibit violence against non-Muslims. Full stop. Well, if you keep talking about Islam meaning peace, you're liable to get your head separated from your neck. That's a fate I'm willing to face. If it's, uh, the, I mean, this is something that progressive Muslims are aware of. We face threats every day. Being a, uh, a convert to Islam, it's a bit easier for me. There are a lot of other Muslim reformers out there who have it much more difficult, who live in Egypt, who live in Syria, who live in Iran, who are truly facing oppression. And it's much easier for me to be in a country like New Zealand or the United States and to be able to speak our mind. That was Thomas Hayden, a New Zealand-based member of the Free Muslim Coalition Against Terror. Time now for the ubiquitous Lawrence Simon. Hi there, I'm Lawrence Simon and this is the Full of Crap Report on Shire Network News. I'd like to welcome everyone who's listening to this podcast through iTunes. iTunes 4.9 has been out for a while now, but only just now is this podcast, my own personal podcast, Israeli Cool, IMAO, and many other excellent offerings have been available through iTunes. You know, it's a funny thing about portables. Uh, Yahoo, Google, Go.com. Oops, uh, forget about them. <laughs> Sorry, old Walt. Let's take a look at one of them. Google. Specifically, it's news aggregator slash portal product. Uh, Google News is guilty of populating its page with feeds from various rancid anti-Semitic sites, virulently pro-jihadi information providers, uh, and America-bashing stump sites with no news content whatsoever. Furthermore, Google's contributions to political parties and candidates as a whole have been, let's just say, hard to the left. For podcasts, all it takes is an RSS feed and the magical enclosure tag. The portals get sent a feed and pow, you're in. Hmm, let me check my list of directories and portals. We've got Podcast Pickle, iPodder, Podcast.net, Podcast Alley. Be sure to vote for Shire News Network. How did Tom slip that in there? Oh, well, never mind. Where was I? But that's part of my point. In a perfect world, audience and position is determined by quality. The more audience you have and the better quality content you make, the faster people will tune in to what you're saying or selling. In its quest to make itself the portal for podcasts, how will Apple thumb the scales politically and commercially? Just take a moment to look at the podcasts in the top ranks of Apple's listings right now and on the top level there. How many independents do you see? Are the little guys being blocked out? Well, they're listed on the site. Not that you notice them, of course. You have to drill through the Disneys, the Al Frankens, the Adam Curries, and the other high-profile content providers repurposing their broadcast and web material through podcasting. But what was the most curious about iTunes 4.9 release that many of these so-called podcasts were already populated in the iTunes directory, but the extensions for the RSS2 demanded by iTunes of any podcast wanting to be listed weren't posted openly until the release of iTunes 4.9. It's like a race where the starting gun goes off, but the other runners have already flown off the blocks. 
Furthermore, the extensions are proprietary ones using the iTunes name in the various XML tags. Just take a look at a podcast and just do view source. You know, look at the RSS. You'll see those tags in there if they want to play their game. It's the same proprietary extension game we've seen time and time again with Microsoft and Internet Explorer, Netscape and the infamous Blink tag, and so on and so on and so on. Join a standards board, set a standard, then break it in the next breath. Welcome to the history of the Internet. And apparently it's future, too. Time will tell if Apple will be doing its damnedest to alter the course of Dave Weiner's RSS creation for the 3.0 release. But if the demand to include proprietary code to get listed on their portal is any hint, I think we're in for interesting times, and we'll all be forced to march to Apple's iTunes to have even the smallest slice of pie in the back room, hidden away from the front display window where all the big boys are dancing. Anyway, this has been Lawrence Simon, and... I guess I'm full of crap. As regular listeners to Shire Network News and regular readers of SilentRunning.tv will know, the war in Iraq, bombs in London, mortar and rocket attacks on Jewish settlements in the Gaza Strip, the campaign for academic diversity in U.S. universities and the discovery of pro-Jihad books at a store in Sydney, Australia, are all part of one big war. There's another crucial front as well, the church struggle. That was the term used by people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who waged an ideological war for the soul of Christianity against the Nazis and their attempts to nationalize and paganize German churches in the 1930s and 40s. There are many within Christian churches of all denominations, Catholic, Protestant and Orthodox, who feel a similar Nazi-style attempt to destroy Christianity from within is going on right now, this time in the name of anti-Zionism. You all know about the growth of anti-Jewish feeling in many mainline churches, coupled with calls for disinvestment from Israel and pressure from church leaders on governments to take a more anti-Israel position. Some individual Christians are fighting back against what they see as a dangerous theological development which threatens to turn the clock back to the bad old days when official Christianity taught contempt for Jews because the church was the new Israel and there was no more room for the old Israel. One such Christian became so angry about the politicisation of the British church organisation Christian Aid that he set up a blog about it. He blogs under the name of Cyrus, which is a nice biblical touch there. Cyrus was the Persian leader hailed as a messiah when he allowed the Jewish captives in Babylon to return to Israel after he conquered the Babylonian Empire. Well, Cyrus's blog is called, perhaps rather controversially, Christian Hate. I asked Cyrus why such an in-your-face name. Why Christian hate? I sort of uh, hesitated about that one, but you know, I really wanted to sort of capture the the danger of the the route that Christian aid is going down. The real concern behind this is anti-Semitism and where it's led to in the past, and whether we as Christians are prepared to learn the lessons and make sure we don't go there again. But with uh, Christian aid, it was just that um, I was getting their supporters magazine and. You know, every single issue, there was coverage of the Israel-Palestine conflict, and every time it was um, heavily political and totally biased. And the more I saw this, the more I thought, well, this is, this is not on. There's something, something going badly wrong here. Tell me about Christian Aid. What sort of an organization is What was it set up to do? Well, Christian Aid is a, um, a development charity set up just after the war, I believe. It is the official development charity of all the main churches in Britain, apart from the Roman Catholics, who have their own. I mean, its money is raised by uh, church members contributing and uh, fundraising in various ways. 
but we get uh, a lot of support from uh, the uh, British government and from the European Union. And you're concerned about the direction that it's going, especially with regard to the Israel-Palestine conflict? There are a lot of issues where one could um, have concerns about its politics and about its economic. But really, I, I want to narrow the focus to this, this one issue because I, I think it is so so dangerous and so um, unchristian. Why is it unchristian? They would suggest that um, they're concerned with the peace and well-being of all peoples and that they're trying to be even-handed. All these groups say that they're trying to be even-handed. I actually don't think that Christian aid even claim to be even-handed. They claim to have a bias towards the poor and to be doing what they call advocacy work um, on behalf of the poor. So I think if you start with that, those assumptions, you immediately get into the kind of um, victim culture thing where um, the Palestinians are poor, therefore it must be the rich Israelis' fault. They're just not open to the possibility that <coughs> Palestinians themselves have a, a major part to play in, in the dilemma that they're in. Why do you think they've taken this line? Is it purely political or are there some religious motives behind it? I mean, there are theologies behind it, although they're, they're hardly ever made explicit by, by their campaigning material. There is um, what's called uh, replacement theology. Do you think they consciously follow that or is that just implicit in the way that they approach these questions? I mean, it's very hard to say what's underlying it because, uh, as I say, it's not made explicit. Um, I mean, the other places a lot of them are coming from, I think, is um, some kind of liberation theology, which um, very much um, models things on uh, South Africa and sees this as a, as a sort of repeat, repeat of the apartheid situation. And yet they don't see Zionism as a fulfillment of biblical promises of return? Uh, apparently not. I mean, they claim not to dispute Israel's uh, right to exist. But my worry is that um, they're not um, making it clear that that, uh, that that right to exist is very much disputed by, by Israel's enemies, by groups like uh, Hamas. And it seems that impossible to get them to make a, a clear condemnation of, of Hamas. Um, but it does seem to be something that's increasingly widespread. I mean, we've had this meeting of the Anglican Communion where there was um, a unanimous vote in favour of uh, a resolution. Well, it didn't actually explicitly commend disinvestment, but it was pretty clearly encouraging churches to think about disinvestment and was certainly a victory for the people who are, who are pressing for it. Does the ordinary person in the pew understand what's going on? My impression is no, they don't, on the whole. Um, I think, you know, Christian aid is kind of an institution. People go around lifting envelopes and shaking tins once a year, uh, you know, assume that uh, their money will be, will be doing good. Well, you've started um, this blog, Christian Hate. Have you had any response to that? Yes, I've had quite a lot of response. It's been interesting. Though, very supportive comments from, from Jews including a couple of the couple of top journalists in, in, in Britain. Well, probably because we're so surprised to find someone supporting us. Well, yes, I'm afraid that may be the case. You were also supported, I believe, by Melanie Phillips, who runs a very influential blog. She mentioned you prominently a couple of times. Yes, that's one of the two I was referring to, her and uh, Stephen Pollard. I've always been very impressed by her journalism, even though I don't always entirely agree with her, but... Uh, 
you know, I, th- I think on this issue she's saying a lot of things that need to be said. What about Christians? How have they responded? The response has been totally supportive, apart from one um, real sort of flaming mail that I posted yesterday. First time in my life I've been called a fascist or, or fascist, as the spelling of, the, of it is. Oh, well, welcome to the club. You're only being effective if they're calling you a fascist. Yeah, interesting that you get called a fascist when you take up the cause of Israel. Slightly ironic, isn't it? I would say the support is coming from, if you like, the conservative end of the spectrum. You know, I'm keen to try and reach the sort of centre to liberal part of the church as well. Maybe I've just not um, posted comments and things in the right places yet, and maybe there's still work to be done. I, you know, I think there are a lot of people there who are very much um, committed on the pro-Palestinian side. If I can ask a fairly provocative question, is the kind of anti-Israel feeling, anti-Zionism, actually anti-Jewish racism? I think that's a very difficult question to answer. Um, I imagine these people certainly don't consciously think of themselves in that way. I think they consciously think of themselves as um, committed anti-racist. You know, um, the more a state is being demonized, that just happens to be um, the one state that's run by Jews. Is there anything that Jews or Israel can do about this, or is this just something that Christians have to work out for themselves? I was listening to your last podcast, and there was a mention of um, how uh, um, Israel is kind of shooting itself in the foot in, in terms of not um, being aggressive in advertising its case. And maybe that needs to change. I mean, I think there's a job to be done within the church. I was very struck by a suggestion that Melanie Phillips made, that actually... Um, Jews need to go to the church at uh, grassroots parish level and put the case that's not being heard um, for Israel's side of this conflict. Yes, I, I do believe that that could make a difference. Is there a discussion on this or a debate happening within churches that, that blogs are part of it all? Or is this done in a somewhat more bureaucratic fashion, very sort of top-down? I mean, I, I've not really come across blogs which are debating this issue, to be honest. Um, I mean, you know, there are blogs which are taking more or less the same line that I'm taking. But in, in a sense, um, it's all pretty much preaching to the converted at the moment. That's a problem with blogs, isn't it? it t- they tend to be read by the people who agree with the author. Yes, yeah. But, you know, one hopes there is a kind of a spillover that, that some people uh, do read something that's, that's new to them. That was blogger Cyrus, who runs the blog Christian Hate. Well, that's it from Shire Network News for this week. It's the official podcast, of course, of silentrunning.tv. I'm your host, Tom Payne. Next week, assuming some dangerous clown doesn't blow the planet off its axis completely, we'll be bringing you an interview with the right-wing Jewish editor of a university student newspaper in New Zealand who says classical liberalism is the new black. That's Emily Braunstein, editor of Victoria University of Wellington's Salient magazine, the very publication that back in 1983 called me a fuckwit. Revenge is a dish best served cold, don't you think? Until next week, may your God go with you.